everybody. This is Anna and Brian from Amada World Podcast. And today we have our next guest for XR episode, Michael Hoffman, who is CEO of uh, IQXR, a mesmerized group company. Hi, Michael. Oh, should I call you Hoff? Well, that's an interesting one. I'm Hoff in uh, business and Michael in my personal life. Uh, so uh, I think probably Hoff is the appropriate thing here. <laughs> okay. Great to have you on the podcast, Hoff. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Can you give a small introduction to yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. Um, I am passionate about technology. I've been doing this since I was 11 years old. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to next year where I can say 50 years. I, I've been programming for 49 years. Uh, I, I knew I was wanting to start a company as early as 16 years old. Uh, been a bunch of startups. Uh, my career transitioned into enterprise companies uh, about uh, 15 years ago. I uh, uh, ended up at Nike with bringing their sport band to market, their first fitness wearable. Um, that led to other g uh, gigs at uh, you know, Google. I, I helped bring London 2012 Olympics uh, to live streaming. They live streamed every single, uh, every single event at the London Olympics. Uh, and then probably the most relevant is I ended up uh, on the HoloLens team at Microsoft. Um, it started as a lean startup engagement. And when Satya got promoted, the lean startup group was um, shuffled around and I was looking for another place to land and landed in this super, super, super secret project where even I, as a Microsoft employee, wasn't allowed to know about it. And it turned out it was this uh, thing that eventually became the HoloLens. It's pretty cool. That's really impressive. Uh, and I think it's just like, probably we can call you if you're try to start your first uh, company, 16 years old, you mentioned. So you're kind of like a serial interpreter or so. So I've, yeah, so I've wanted, I knew I was going to start companies at 16, read every business book I can uh, get my hands on. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I actually read Art of the Deal, uh, <laughs> which is uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, book that was, became fairly famous. Um, but it was like, I was, I was like a velociraptor just uh, absorbing everything. Um, I actually did found my first real company, like a company with employees. I did consulting before that, but, uh, my real, a real company around when I was 26 and, uh, IQXR is my fifth at this point. Uh, I've started five companies. So it's been, been quite the, quite the exciting career. Yeah, I'm sure. Just just looking at your background is just you know there's a whole laundry list of different companies, startups, and like all kinds of technologies that you've been involved with. Um, could you indeed? Yeah, I mean, could you could you dive a little bit more deeper into like how did you first come across XR? It start, seems like you started off with sort of media technologies, and like how did you first find out about XR? How did you? Yeah, it yeah. it kind of started before XR was even a thing. Um, I was so interested in 3D graphics as a 16-year-old. I was I wrote uh, drivers for a Radio Shack pen plotter and made it do you know, dozens of frames of rotating spaceships and rotating houses and things, all written in assembly language. Uh, because I was just absolutely interested in 3D. Um, I, I went through a lot of different uh, phases where I didn't touch anything that was really 3D, except that I did create a. I wanted a Mac so bad. I actually created an implementation of a Mac that ran on Apple II, all in assembly language as well. And one of the things I put in there, of course, was all of my 3D graphics stuff that I had written as a way to show off what I had created. Um, but then I, um, I was, um, I had this opportunity to, um, 
port the uh, Microprose F117 flight simulator, which is you know obviously all 3D um, from the PC assembly language again uh, to Macintosh, and that was a really good introduction into the actual underlying technologies of all the complexities of you know removing um, hidden faces, all all the more complex parts of 3D, um, and. and but then I went for a long time without anything that was really 3D related. I, I did do quite a bit in digital imaging, which also overlaps. There's a lot of digital imaging in, in, in 3D. Um, it was actually that Holland's uh, encounter that, uh, that really launched this. And it was just such a good fit for me. It was like I hadn't even tried to get into the, this industry intentionally. So the fact that it uh, kind of fell on my lap was, was serendipitous. Um, they literally could not tell me what it was. And I just had to take it on faith. I, I told them what I liked. And they said, you know, you need to be on this team. You know, everything you said you liked uh, exactly is the kind of things that you're going to find here. Um, day one, go to my desk. Three feet from my desk is this weird um, Kawasaki motorcycle with no plastic on it. It's not just the chassis, right? And I was like, what the heck? Why is there this disassembled motorcycle three feet from my desk? And they put this Frankenstein contraption on my head. And they say, hey, try this out. And that contraption put all of the plastic on the on that motorcycle in place. Like it was right there. Like it was like it was it was so jarring. I didn't even get for a second what I was seeing and what was happening. Cause I, I didn't necessarily register that there wasn't plastic on there, right? And it was that just that aha moment. It's like, oh, this is definitely the right part of Microsoft for me. <laughs> like, this is really cool. The next thing they showed me is uh, the Mars Curiosity mission planning uh, solution. They put me in a special room they had set up and put that same Frankenstein device on in that, in that um, demo room. And I was standing on Mars right next to the Curiosity uh, robot. And I, I, I mean, I was just blown away. And that was one of the projects I worked on was yeah, I wrote the audio stack for making it possible for geologists around the world to talk every single day and tell Curiosity what to do. And I I, I uh, ran into somebody that still works at JPL, said, yeah, not only are they still using it for Curiosity, they're now using it for multiple different missions. And I was like, cool, that's so cool. I was part of that. Um, yeah, so I mean, it was very definitely a good place for me. In fact, I would go so far as it was even more appropriate for me than if I had ended up in any kind of entertainment area, because I've always been a super practical person. I've always wanted to solve real business problems. So that I landed in the one studio out of six studios at Microsoft that was the one focused on enterprise was also just this you know, ideal place to land. And, and I really learned a lot about how spatial computing is going to transform everything. And can you give some examples on the projects you're currently working? Because you mentioned special computing and so maybe we can dive deeper about iqxr yeah so um i and, and many of those around me have had this vision that um yeah unity's great unreal's great they they really make it super easy to build solutions for um this industry they they were all originated for the entertainment industry and now a bunch of companies are trying to use it for enterprise and what a lot of us realize is that they were never really built for all the more robust needs of enterprise software where it has to survive for 15, 20 years. No game is expected to last more than a few years before you, you know, start over with even more innovative stuff and you, and you basically uh, almost always scrap a lot of what you had had before. With enterprise, it doesn't work that way. You're building something that hopefully will still be viable 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And um, Unity and Unreal are working towards that goal of making that um, making them more aligned with with those needs, um, 
but, but even if they do, the thing they output is deploy anywhere that that's relevant. That what we believe is what will be relevant is the future of web technologies. It'll be 100% open standards based. It'll which some of them don't exist yet. Um, it will be an evolution of where we are today. Which currently, you know, there's WebGL, there's WebXR. You know, there there are technologies that are emerging that are already, you could argue, partially mature that are already making a difference in being able to deploy on web stacks. Um, but the thing that is even more challenging than that is if if you're wearing a device and you're walking around the world, this is the future where it's glasses, right? It's not this thing you only put on for one purpose. It's the thing you wear all the time as your way of interacting with all technology. There are a lot of technologies that are missing. And, and we are embarking on this journey of how do you create those missing pieces so that it is possible to have a future where every everything you would expect to be possible is possible. And it's not such a bowl of the ocean challenge that that you, you have to have a billion dollars to do, right? Well, we want to help make sure that any arbitrary software developer or small company can say, I want to build something interesting for these emerging devices and have it work in that new you know, web, spatial web is what we're calling it, spatial web way of, of the way the world's going to work. And that's, you know, that's five to 10 years away, but, you know, we're in a, this uh, enviable position of being able to think long term and, and be building for that eventual future and um, chipping away at pieces of the puzzle to get there. And, you know, one big piece is creator flow is super expensive right now. Just anything that it takes to create an experience requires a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of money. It actually is a big blocker for adoption. So we're thinking about all the ways in which AI uh, can be used to actually you know, reduce the cost and reduce the expertise needed to create experiences. And, and so those are the kinds of things that we're chipping away at right now is like, how do I make uh, AI do some of the, the work for me? Wow. Well, yeah. No, I, I totally get what you're saying because you know, in my experience working with some of these technologies as well, um, Unity and Unreal for all that they're really good in, they're not like coming from, I guess, you know, more enterprise software background. There's a lot of things that they're missing, and uh, yeah, the, the whole experience is not quite there. Like yep. you, you did mention, you're chipping away at some of the, the missing pieces. Does that um, involve sort of hard, more hardware side as well, or is it purely sort of software based? Because you, you mentioned like AI that, tools as well. It's a really good question. Um, in the short haul, we will not be doing any hardware on our own. Um, one of our strategies is not to reinvent anything that's already out there. You know, we want to partner with absolutely everybody who has best in class of anything, you know, best in class avatars, best in class content management system for spatial content. And, and we're not here to reinvent anything. What we want to do is make sure that the plumbing between all those pieces is so good that you get things for free, like end-to-end security comes for free, end-to-end internationalization. Like if the CMS ever has everything in English, but you want it to be international, our plumbing will know, oh, that's a piece of text. You have told me I want that text in French. So that will come out the other end in French. Those are the kinds of things that that we're looking at creating so that when you start piecing together all the pieces, you don't have to think about end-to-end encryption and security, end-to-end low latency, end-to-end internationalization, end-to-end branding. Um, all of those things are part of the, the plumbing. And it's all going to be based on open standards. We're going to be driving open standards for absolutely everything. We may need to adopt something before it's an open standard, but then we'll drive it uh, with you know, open standards uh, groups like Kronos Group um, to to turn it into an open standard after the fact. And if, and if we don't win the standards war, we'll adopt whatever open standard does exist because we want it to all be based on open standards. We don't care what's on either side of an open standard. Um, 
we, and of course we need to make money. So the, our way of making money is we're just going to be best in class on certain pieces of the puzzle. We don't know a hundred percent what those are yet, but we have a giant laundry list and we're going to say, well, if there's nobody out there competently offering this piece of puzzle, we know this piece of puzzle is important. We may carve that out as something that we build and, and we have a free tier that can be used with all the other pieces, but then we'll have the, you know, the, if you need the, the more advanced version for your enterprise deployment, you know, we make a little bit of money off of it. Um, but we believe that, Right now we're in the phase where you just need to have a bigger pie. Right now the pie is so small, nobody can make money. We know so many companies that are struggling because they all see the promise of spatial computing, but it's taking a lot longer to become, uh, hit the critical mass point, hit the, you know, that, that hockey stick, um, uh, point where it takes off. Um, and, and we're trying to bring it closer to that hockey stick where everybody can start making money by creating a much, much, much bigger ecosystem to work in. I actually was curious about because you have um, a lot of experience building XR. Um, do you think the reducing the cost, because you mentioned that it's so expensive, that's the reason why small businesses are not uh, actually participated in it, um, in this field yet. Do you think reducing the cost will actually um, bring more and more businesses on this playground? Or there is some additional difficulties and problems that stopping them doing it, maybe like a hardware, or we don't really know how to create like a user experience around that. So because it's, it's a, like a little bit gap from going from the screen on your mobile phone, and you need to actually hold it all the time up, right? And what do you think? Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and this is why it's such a big challenge is that there are so many ways in which it's difficult to, to release a solution. Um, for, for, you know, ever since the Hollands came out, you know, eight, ten, eight, was it eight or nine years ago now? Um, there've been tons and tons of POCs, tons of pilots where you get to that point where you validate that there actually is value in doing something. But the chasm between being at that point where you validated that it's more efficient to do a hard skill or it's, you know, more efficient to train your sales force. You can, you can get to a point where you know that, but then you realize that the number of barriers to get it to be a fully globally deployable solution is vast. I mean, even multi-device management, MDM for these devices is still really immature. And that's clearly an important part of the equation. That's not something we're going to solve, but, but it is a piece that needs solving. A lot of people just blame it on the device, but I, I, I think the whole FOV, uh, story is, is a red, is a red herring. Uh, until you solve the the amount of time, money, expertise it takes to build anything, you're not going to solve it. But there's but that's only even a piece of the puzzle. You, every single company needs to boil the ocean. They need to figure out how how are you going to do end to end audio? How are you going to do video? How are you going to do uh, encryption? How are you going to do really low latency? Uh, all of those challenges. One of, the, one of the biggest ones, honestly, is every deployable solution needs you to work inside a mine or an aircraft or in the remote regions of the country where there is no internet. And yet for global scale deployment, it really has to live in the cloud. So how do you solve that? It's all normally online, but the second you go offline, you want it to keep working. Maybe the only thing you give up is being able to talk to somebody, but other than that, it still has to work. So those are, those are really hard technological problems that need solving. Um, that, and, you know, you could say that there's things like form factor challenges, too, which is true if you want to wear it all day long. 
But there are tons of business use cases where even an hour at a time or even 15 minutes at a time delivers real value. And you don't need it to be something that you wear all day long yet, especially not in industry use cases. Um, obviously, in entertainment, you often don't wear it that long either. Um, we will get to the point where the form factor will be such that you can wear it every day. And it's the alternative to pulling your phone out of your pocket all the time or, you know, looking at your Apple watch all the time. Um, we're going to get to a point where that all just is always there ambient all the time. And we don't have to conform to our devices anymore. The devices are more conforming to us. I think, so you mentioned like some, uh, some of the companies that could be engaging with like XR solutions at, at the moment. Like, do you think like in your opinion, uh, today, how well equipped are these companies? Like, I don't know, um, you know, training wise in terms of their staff. So, hardware wise, are they equipped to, you know, install some of these programs onto their systems, or do they have the hardware to play with this? Like, how easy is it for them to adopt this technology at the moment? So, so another red herring is the cost of the device. Yes, consumer, you know, fifteen hundred dollars for an Apple Vision Pro or whatever they. I think that's what they're the speculating the price will be. Um, maybe even more than that. Um, the price of the device, yes, in consumer matters. In business, if it solves a business problem, you you it doesn't matter. Like my laptop, I always buy the top of the line. It's three or four thousand dollars. Uh, you know, it's it's if you can justify it because it solves your business problem, that's not the issue. So that's not a barrier. Um, MDM is basically a barrier for mass deployment, but certainly not in the you know in the smaller scale. And again, if it solves a problem, you can probably suffer through that for a short period of time. Um I, the barrier right now isn't that a company can't adopt the devices and the technologies. It is that if they want a solution, there's a dearth of solutions. There's a, there are some good ones coming out. I mean, there, it's not like there's none. It's just that there's so much opportunity compared to the number of solutions that are available. And they're highly specialized in doing very specific things. And even there, content creation continues to often be the barrier, um, you know, like uh, in task guidance. Yeah, how do you how do you guide somebody through something when you don't actually have the CAD for the thing you're trying to guide them through? That's the, now all of a sudden you have to figure that piece out. Um, so this is again where we're trying to figure out all the ways in which we can cleverly uh, reduce some of those barriers. Um, so so the the barriers to adoption really aren't for for certain business use cases aren't the device aren't the price. It, it's the lack of an actual enterprise caliber solution that solves the actual problem that you need to solve. Um, and, and that is exactly where we want to make that way, way, way easier for every single company out there that wants to build for these emerging markets. And, and once, once uh, us and other companies solve some of the underlying plumbing and foundation uh, for, for building for this emerging market, once that exists, you're going to just see a flood, a flood of companies building for these devices. It's it's going to be like once the Apple Store opened for the for the first iPhones, once the you know be, because everybody saw the potential. And what would you say was the most exciting development in XR over the last year? I, I, even though I haven't tried one yet, I have to say the Apple Vision Pro. Like, and and it's not. It partly it's because uh, Apple App, Apple doesn't succeed at everything they do, but if Apple's doing it, it's going to be good, right? They won't put it out there unless it's good. Um, and and everybody I know who has tried one says, "Yep, what you, what you see in their promotional sizzle reels is definitely what you're going to get, right?" Uh, it, and that makes me confident that it will be transformative. It'll be transformative because it will be a good device. It'll be transformative because people will believe that if Apple's doing this, it's a real thing. It's worth investing in, and it's going to wake up an industry that tried to wake up. Up with the HoloLens and and 
maybe to a lesser extent for business with the with the quest and the magic leap. Uh, and I and I everything I say is kind of with more of the enterprise business lens on, not the consumer lens. Um, so, and I think Apple will change it. I think Apple is going to wake up everything on the consumer side and the enterprise side, uh, just because there's so much faith and trust in Apple and in their decision making and the quality. Um, I cannot wait to get my hands on an Apple Vision Pro. Uh, I, it just to me, and I've been a, I've been an Apple two and Mac guy my entire life. So for me, it's like extra exciting because I've had a lot of brand affinity for the Apple brand. Absolutely, I, I completely agree. It's like, I mean, um, I mean, I use a few Mac products myself, like Apple products, and you know, it they really get the whole ecosystem thing right. How easy it is to integrate between different devices, and I can completely see you know, how the Vision Pro can just be an extension of, say, my workstation, and you know, using that day to day. And also, your comment about how the industry is waiting. I think there was um, was in there a report or something that. There was a huge um, sort of like I don't know a downturn or something in the, the XR industry in China, and some what of some people are saying is just because of the Apple Vision Pro announcement. Everyone is kind of like waiting with bated right. breath. They're not looking at any other device up until they see the whole Apple Vision Pro yeah. come out. Um, so I guess yeah. Well, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like, what are you hoping to see uh, change in the industry with? the coming of Apple Vision Pro and maybe the later iterations as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's what I hope to see and there's what I hope I don't see. <laughs> Apple, you know, tends to be the one successful walled garden company that can just create their own ecosystem and kind of ignore open standards, which is the, the part I'm not excited about. Um, I am incredibly thrilled that they, out of the box, yeah, right, even before it's out, said that they are partnering with Unity, which I think was a really wise move on Apple's part. And it definitely... Uh, suggest that they get that um, if if they try to keep it too close to to just Apple, they may actually reduce their ability to succeed or at least succeed quickly. Um, so so that's the exciting part. I, I think what we're going to see is um, a lot more investment in startups in this environment that are kind of a rebirth of investment in this environment. I, there was certainly a lot of investment um, when the Hololens came out, and, and I do believe it'll be. Similar, but even at a larger scale, just again, because of Apple's reputation. Um, the the other thing I do think is that we will start seeing a lot more activity in what it, what it means to build all of these missing pieces for this emerging market. Um, Apple uniquely uh, is is very strong consumer, but also has a decent, decent present penetration into business, especially anything on the creative side. Um, so, so they're in a really good position, position to have a device that is competent and is broadly adopted on both sides of the equation, enterprise and consumer. And I was thrilled that they actually even talked about enterprise uses of their device in their actual uh, launch uh, introduction, which means that they definitely are, are looking at both sides of the equation. And they also solved one of probably the one that's highest value things that you can offer in a device out of the box, which is what I call infinite screen, which is just cast your Mac, all your Mac windows into your environment and have effectively as much screen as you want without needing to have a monitor. So you can move anywhere you want in your house or office and you've got all, as many screens as you want to open around you from from your Mac. Uh, and, and to me, that's a, a use case that's low-hanging fruit that just makes these devices valuable right out of the box. And, and honestly, I would buy one just for that. Uh, you know, obviously... 
I'm, I have enough income to be able to say that and to just say that's, that unlocks opportunities for me, just that. Um, but you only need a few things to justify the purchase of the device. And then everything else starts being easier for, for industry, right? If you know a lot of people are buying devices for this, this one thing, like, you know, the iPhone, you buy it for the maps and for the ability for it to be a phone, right? That's the vast majority was for, oh, and the internet, internet maps and phone. Now, once you have devices out there just for those three reasons, now all of a sudden you have this entire market of devices out there that you can build for. And that that is that whole chicken and egg problem that I think is going to get solved fairly quickly, finally, with the Apple Vision Pro, that no other device yet has fully succeeded. Now, Quest, and Quest 3 in particular, um, is, is such a competent device at such a low price point. I think it, too, will... Uh, contribute to to this finally solving the chicken and egg challenge that we've been facing in the last 10 years. Uh, I wanted to touch on another topic that's trending right now in the tech scene, which is generative AI. Do you think the XR community can take advantage of AI in their projects? Absolutely. Generative AI, I've been um, experimenting quite a bit with generative AI. We, we believe that that will be part of the solution to... Um, the content creation costs. Uh, a lot of what you need in any kind of scenario is is ambient. It's just the the environment. It's the mood. It's it's the things that don't matter that much. And even today's generative AI, I believe, can be a competent uh, contributor to to creating your ambient content where it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, like a good, just a good example is if you have a solution that's training how to fix something on an aircraft, wouldn't it be cool if the skybox that you're in, the you know, the environment you're in looked like an aircraft hangar? Well, you can imagine it's pretty, We're if we aren't already there, we're pretty close to being able to, within half an hour or so, to get a generative AI to make a competent skybox of, of an aircraft hangar. And it doesn't have to be perfect. That's the cool thing about it. And, and now all of a sudden you're not hiring an artist and paying the artist $3,000 to create your hangar for you, right? And you've, you know, you've dramatically reduced the cost of, of solving that piece of the puzzle. And generative 3D model generation is becoming a thing. So you can imagine that we're going to get to a point where like you just need ambient props and you're seeing I, you know, give me a mug here and a whatever there. And it all of a sudden you've, you know, very short order without needing to be a, a 3D modeler, have a large portion of what you need to do a, a project. And, and keep in mind too, that there's value even in the creation process and the ideation phase of a project, right? Where you don't even need it to be perfect because eventually somebody, it's like the storyboard phase, right? You don't even need to be perfect. You just need to be enough that you can t- get, then hand it over to the, to the, to the professionals that will then do it over again at quality. And so there's a lot of room for generative AI on the, um, on the imagery and 3D model side to, to benefit. Um, chat, uh, you know, conversational AI, chat GPT kind of technologies. Um, I mean, other than all the uses we already know about, about, you know, chatbots on your, as your customer service uh, agent and things like that, um, there, there are opportunities to do things like uh, any kind of tr- Interpersonal training, like training your sales force. You can imagine chat um, can be used as a way to create conversational scenarios that then can teach um, things like uh, interaction in business settings. Um, so there's that. But it's also now getting to the point where you can just talk to your computer and tell your computer what to do through you know, the equivalent or future equivalent of prompts. You, know, you just say, you know, I really need to... Um, I need to build a scenario that has a couch over here and a window over there. And the the conversational AI understands what you're saying and it actually 
you know, does the work of, of building the scene for you uh, with those elements in it, because um, you can now talk to your computer instead of needing to type anything. And with, with these wearable devices, the ability to not type, but to talk to your computer is actually really important. And it, and it will, it, you know, bring back some of the efficiencies of typing that are hard to get right now in some of these devices. Even, even the C3 devices like Apple Vision Pro, the need to be in front of a keyboard um, will will continue to exist until we solve that pro- part of the problem. And I do believe that conversational AI technologies will be a part of that solution. Do you have any hopes and predictions for the future of XR industry? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my, my vision is I've got my future AR glasses on. I'm walking down the street. It knows things I'm interested in. It knows I like sushi. It knows I like architecture. So I'm walking down the street and it says, oh, do you know the history of this architectural building? You know, somebody's created a really cool experience about this building. And I would like to share it with you if you're interested. And, you know, just because I'm walking by that building, all of a sudden I, I now know and can experience the history of that building through some really interesting experience. Um, then I go to a restaurant. Um, I sit down at my table because it knows where I am, because it knows who I am, uh, and it even knows some of my preferences. The chef magically materializes on my table and tells me about the specials of the day, and it favors telling me about the the ones that they know I'll like and maybe even try to upsell me on a few things. Um, And imagine that I look over to another wall and there's like a bingo bingo thing going on and imagine another wall there's just an advertisement and of course it's specialized to me because only i can see it it's not like the advertisement on the wall is seen by everybody in the restaurant it's only being seen by me so now that one's specialized to me too but think about it every single thing i just said is coming from a different company right how do you have a device that you're wearing in a restaurant and and a it knows what your preferences are and it knows what you don't want to see as well as what you do want to see and everything around me is being somehow integrated together and given to me as a coherent whole. Those those are the futures that that I'm imagining can be magical. I, I mean, obviously, there are these uh, dystopian versions of that uh, floating out on the web where you can see how bad it can get. Um, but hopefully, uh, us humans are smart enough to make sure that it's designed in such a way that we have a lot more control over <laughs> the, turning it into a utopian experience as opposed to a dystopian. And, you know, we won't even get into bias because there's so many bias challenges in all of this. But uh, but if you could solve some of those challenges, I believe that there is the opportunity for the way we interact with technologies being transformative in a way that's never been possible when the computers force you to sit in front of it and interact with it their way and make you do things their way, the computer's way instead of it just being ambient. It's always there. It's always accessible. And it doesn't make you do things a certain way to give you all this extra capability. Amazing. I think what you described there is like the North Star of human computer interaction dreams. Just having everything <laughs> yeah. just work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we're coming into time. I'd love to continue talking forever on this topic, but um, we've got to uh, end the episode at some point. So I'd like to give you, I don't know, the, the last minute or so just to free to um, you know, give you any shout outs, last word to our listeners and you know, how can people find out a bit more about the work you're currently doing at IQXR and how can we reach and connect you, with you? Yeah, I mean, the best way to follow what we're doing is, um, you know, follow IQXR.com on LinkedIn, follow, you know, we have a website, IQXR.com. There's nothing there yet, um, but but there will be. Um, my LinkedIn is um, in slash MT Hoffman. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, and that's definitely the best way. I'd love to hear from all of you. Um, I, I, 
I get a lot of joy out of interacting with uh, other passionate folks in in these different fields. Uh, so I hope to hear from you. Yeah, it's been great having you and hearing all your thoughts. <laughs> You're quite welcome. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. Bye.